Hello, welcome to Converging Dialogues. This is Xavier Bonilla. Uh, this episode, I'm talking with Neil Thies. Neil is professor of pathology at NYU Grossman School of Medicine. And he has been a pioneer of adult stem cell plasticity and a lot of other interdisciplinary fields that have such things as integrative uh, medicine and consciousness studies, among others. He is the author of the latest book, Notes on Complexity, a Scientific Theory of Connection, Consciousness, and Being. Um, it is a, it's a wonderful book, um, mostly for, for many reasons. But one thing is it's very small, so it's, you can read it maybe one sitting, kind of a coffee table-sized book. And it just spans so many different disciplines in a kind of uh, seamless um, get very, very synthesized, connected way for the common person, uh, which is actually quite hard to do. And Neil is, uh, is just fantastic. He does it extremely well. And uh, it's, it's, it's a wonderful book. Um, so we talk all about the book, and, and we really kind of look at these three major themes, if you will. We start by talking about complexity. We talk about what complexity is, um, how it's connected with general systems theory, chaos theory, we spend a lot of time on on fractals, which is obviously uh, uh, wonderful to 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 discuss. I, I find that super fascinating. I've talked about it before in the podcast, as I mentioned, and um, I was glad to talk about it here. Um, we talk about this idea of being uh, complementary and and how that works with cellular biology and with quantum mechanics. So we talk a little bit about physics here, which is super cool. And we talk about consciousness and, and what it means to be human um, and trying to still understand many of these things with, you know, subjective experiences, but what consciousness could mean. And, and there's a really nice way in which Neil ties all these things together. It doesn't feel disjointed or, you know, tackling too many things at once. It really feels very connected. And he has such a, a wonderful way of, of doing this, both in the book and in the conversation. He's, he's quite lovely, uh, such a sharp mind, and, and uh, I, I really enjoyed uh, every minute of this, of this conversation. Um, so I, I, almost, I wanted more, and uh, it, was, it was great. So it was, I, I really, really enjoyed how, how we really were able to dive into these, these topics. As always, you can find uh, this conversation and all the conversations at convergingdialogues.substack.com. Get over there and subscribe and uh, share widely, also on YouTube as well. And uh, now I bring you Neil Thies. I am here with Neil Thies. Uh, Neil, thanks so much for uh, coming on the podcast. I'm uh, greatly looking forward to uh, talking with you. I'm greatly looking forward to speaking with you too. Thank you. Uh, yeah, of course. Um, so you have written a, a very interesting book. I actually like the size of it. It's kind of like a coffee table size. It's short. Uh, they're really, really, really digestible. Uh, the book is called Notes on Complexity, A Scientific Theory of Connection, Consciousness, and Being. Uh, it's a great, great title. And so we'll we'll talk about all of those in, uh, in, in due time. Um, but first, before we get to that, just tell folks uh, who you are, just your kind of uh, potted biography uh, academically or professionally and uh, what you're what you're up to now sure uh so i'm uh my day job is i'm a liver pathologist um i'm an md uh at nyu langone health nyu grossman school of medicine and so my clinical work is looking at people's liver biopsies and gi biopsies in general 
um, day in and day out. So if someone gets a biopsy, let's say they've had an endoscopy or they're in line for a liver transplant and they get a biopsy, I'm the one who looks at it under the microscope and goes cancer, not cancer, or mm -hmm. viral hepatitis or alcohol or et cetera. And, um, and that's a real privilege that has me looking at people at the cellular level day in and day out. And I'm allowed as an academic to let my imagination run wild. And so that's led to an academic career where I do a lot of uh, clinical, patholo clinical pathological correlation, as we call it. So seeing what we see on the slide and how does that measure up to clinical results. Mm -hmm. That led me eventually to getting an idea of how to prove that the liver had stem cells, which used to be a much more arguable point. Um, 20 years ago, only the bone marrow um, and the blood that comes from it, uh, the GI tract, the lining, and, and the lining of the skin were thought to have stem cells. Now we know that all organs have one kind of stem cell or another. Um, but that led me into basic science research. That's what led me to complexity theory. Mm. And, um, and I also do human anatomy stuff. So a big thing recently for me is this idea that the interstitium of the human body we sort of redefined um what it looks like my team um and talked about it being of a size that warrants maybe being called an organ so there was this business about a new organ being discovered five years ago uh in the field there's actually discussion i was in a meeting yesterday where maybe it should be considered a system mm. which is a level up from organ so mm. that's kind of cool yeah yeah very, very interesting so i do clinical work and research stuff and then in my off time, one of the things I do is I'm a long-term Zen student. So I have a contemplative practice, which feeds into the book as well. Very nice. Yeah. Oh, there's just so many themes and there's so many uh, uh, disciplines in the book, which uh, there's a lot of um, seamless kinds of uh, intersecting there, which is, I think, what made it uh, really kind of stand out, which is which is great. Um, so you get a lot of stuff on consciousness and and there's a lot of stuff on obviously uh physics and you know kind of more cellular stuff so it's, it's really cool to see all of that kind of uh kind of getting together in one place so i guess the, the biggest thing to, to start with is is you mentioned already is complexity theory uh so that might be uh something that listeners may not be aware of um so what is it what is complexity theory and um and and this 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 axiom of you know the whole is greater than the sum of its parts that kind of thing so kind of tell us all of all of uh what's kind of um in the pot so to speak if you will of what makes complexity theory or what it is and how it's used or applied sure well you know it's illustrative to some extent how i came to it um i was doing the stem cell research 20 years ago and talking about how cells are moving around the um, human body, uh, bodies in general, and um, moving from one organ to another, et cetera, and reactive to what they find there and how they behave and organize themselves. And I was in dialogue with an artist named Jane Prophet. I tell this story in the um, author's note at the beginning of the book. And we were just sort of doing an interdisciplinary uh, exercise. How would a scientist and an artist communicate with each other? And um, uh, but that's where it's the, you know, the the spaces between fields where you get communication going, where the fun stuff happens. And I was telling her this about stem cells. And she said that reminded her of how people in complexity theory talk about how ants self-organize into ant colonies. 
and uh, amoebas into slime molds and, and things like this. And I'd never heard of complexity theory before, but the idea that there was something that could describe ants organizing into colonies in the same way it could describe stem cells organizing into tissues and organs, I thought was cool. And so we started to explore that more. And what I found out was that complexity um, is this, uh, you know, it's a description of how interacting individuals that fulfill certain properties and how they interact will self-organize. If they're interacting at the local level, they'll self-organize into larger scale structures on the global level. So you think about how ants moving around and interacting with each other somehow self-organize into food lines, where a cemetery should go, dig tunnels, create a nursery for the queen ant who isn't running the show. She just serves a reproductive function. And um, how all of these larger scale structures, which look like someone planned them, this is called emergent uh, emergence or emergent properties, um, these look like someone planned them, but no one did. They're just arising from the bottom up. And that's very much how cells are working in our bodies. They're interacting with each other at the local level. And out of those interactions, you get tissue maintenance, you get tissue repair if there's been an injury, et cetera. And so this idea that um, complexity theory is a variant of what's called systems theory. And in the list of questions you sent me, <laughs> this was one of the things you're going to ask. Um, systems theory um, started. Really, I mean, it's been around for a long time, but it started naming itself and becoming an organized academic area, I think, maybe in the 50s, 40s or 50s. Mm -hmm. And it's sort of the notion that if you take apart, if you want to know how a clock works, you take it apart and look at the pieces. And that's reductionist. You break it down into its smaller parts. And that's what our science has been doing for centuries. We take things apart. We take bodies apart to look at the parts. We take um, machines apart now that we have machines to, to see what they do. And this notion that you then have to put them together to get a real sense of what's going on. And when you take the parts of a clock and put them together, what you get is a clock. It's the same clock it started as when you took it apart. And if you get one of the pieces wrong, there's no clock. It doesn't work. The sum of the parts is exactly what the whole is. The whole is exactly the sum of the parts. It's a clock or it's not a clock. And um, if you're really good as an engineer, you can look at a scattering of pieces and go, this will assemble into a clock, but this is going to uh, assemble into a car. Um, and you can sort of reason it through. But there are systems of interacting parts where that doesn't work so well. And the first class of these developed into what's called chaos theory, and um, which is defined, uh, many of your listeners will have heard of chaos theory, perhaps, and or the geometry that was discovered to describe them, fractals. Mm -hmm. And um, so here you have the parts interacting, but you can't um, know by looking at them what they're going to create. And so uh, to give you an example of fractals, which will help, um, fractal geometries, um, you can't just draw with a pencil like you can draw a triangle or a square. Um, there are things that um, you can draw limited versions of it, and we can see it in nature in limited versions. If you think about a tree from a distance and you see the trunk of the tree and you see it branch into two branches, and then you go in closer and realize that those branches look like a trunk. 
and they branch into two branches. And then those each look like a trunk if you go in closer, and they branch into two branches. So no matter how close in you go, you look, um, they look the same. It's called self-similarity across scales. So the scale of observation, the geometry looks the same. And you can think of puffy clouds looking like that. The closer you get in, you see smaller puffs. You go in closer, you see smaller puffs. It looks like the same thing if you're flying in an airplane, right? Um, and this is these geometries occur all through nature, and some of them repetitively. So if you look at a satellite image of... Um, let's say the Mississippi Delta, and you see the Mississippi branching into all of these smaller tributaries, smaller and smaller. Um, and then I tell you, uh, I don't tell you where it came from. And I said, oh, this is a photograph of blood vessels in, in the human body. You'd believe me because it looks exactly the same, though the scales are vastly different. So this is what makes uh, fractal geometry special. And this is how fractals and chaos appear in life. The only way to understand how the parts are going to interact is if you model them with a computer. So none of this could be discovered until we had computers. So that's why this doesn't show up really until the 70s, 60s and 70s. And um, when you model the parts of a chaotic system, um, what you wind up seeing is things you could not predict and the most common thing we think of where this is used practically is this is how weather patterns are modeled. Mm. Um, and we've gotten very good at predicting weather over the next few hours, days, even weeks in some cases, because uh, they are chaotic systems and they obey the math of chaos. And you can't predict looking at the pieces what they'd be like. But if you've trained your computer programs, you programmed them well to simulate how they might interact. The larger patterns emerge. And so here, because you couldn't predict it from just looking at the pieces, we say that the whole is greater than the sum of its parts. It's not simply looking at them and adding them together. There's something more that's happening. The thing about chaos is that if you start with exactly the same conditions, you'll always get exactly the same structure. So one way you think of this is you look at the play of um, the development of hurricanes, tropical storms and hurricanes in the Atlantic. There's this zone where they arise and they keep doing the same kind of thing over and over again. And the overall pattern is very similar. Though if it starts at this temperature a little over here, it might aim this way. If it shifts the, the temperature and the, and the location a little bit, instead of going to the, the east coast of the U.S., it might head... Um, into Florida or into the Gulf of Mexico, et cetera. So the thing about chaotic systems is if you know the starting conditions, they're predictable. And so that's how you get weather patterns, as an example, or the growth of a tree um, or the growth of some tissues in the body. But um, with complexity, there were still things that couldn't be described by chaos. And the main thing none of these systems could describe is living things. We have biology, we have chemistry, we have physics, but they don't describe when you put the pieces together how you get a living human being, how you get fetal and embryonic development, how a tree grows, um, or how living things self-organize themselves, how ants become colonies, or humans become a city or a culture, or how all the creatures in an area become an ecosystem, or how life on Earth organizes into a planet-wide 
uh, you know, Gaia, as some people want to say, a single living organism. And so that's complexity. And one of the elements about complexity that's key, um, we can analyze them in terms of four rules that the interactions have to obey. And the most interesting to me is that there has to be a low-level randomness in the system, Mm -hmm. which is unlike chaos and unlike how a clock works, et cetera. Um, That low level of randomness is what allows the self-organization of a colony of ants or a group of cells or a bunch of humans to have a little bit of a range to adapt and change if the environment changes. Um, An example of this that I use in the book that's sort of clear to people is you look at a food line of ants and it looks like a straight line and every ant is following the line from the food source to the colony and back. Um, but if every ant were doing that, what's going to happen when the food source runs out? Um, or if a foot steps in the middle of the ant line, um, how are they going to reorganize themselves to get around that foot? And it turns out that if you bend down and look more closely, there are always a few ants, 3 to 4%, that aren't following the food line. And those are the ants that are likely to be finding a new food source while the others are busy shipping the old food source. Or if there's an obstruction that interrupts the food line, it's those ants that rapidly find a new way around the foot. So this low-level randomness allows for adaptation, creative adaptation, and evolution, and therefore is describing living things. And um, if you have too much uh, randomness or unpredictability or disorder, then you can't get any self-organization. You just have chaos literal or figurative, Mm -hmm. Um, if you have too little, then you've got a machine. And living things aren't machines. Machines can't adapt and evolve if the environment changes. And so complex systems live in this sweet spot between chaos and rigid order. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's where life happens. And that's what makes complexity um, exciting, interesting, and vital, literally vital, because it's what describes life, where life comes from, how life evolves, how living things behave with each other to create larger scale living things. That's you, a mouthful. <laughs> yeah, no, no, no. You 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 laid it out very well. I, I liked how you kind of uh, walked us through each of the parts and how they connect. That's that's fabulous. Um, what, as you were talking, I was I was thinking of a few things. One of them is uh, I have to imagine. Uh, you're familiar with the work of Jeffrey West. He wrote this book, Scale. Uh, mm-hmm. he, he was he was on the podcast uh, I don't know, a year, year and a half ago. Wonderful, wonderful man. Brilliant. And it was interesting because, same thing, talked a lot about mm-hmm. fractals in his book. Mm-hmm. And I think one of the... <laughs> I, I've listened to that conversation a few times. And he's such a sweet and delightful man. Uh, but he is also... Uh, quite dense <laughs> and, and and i love it i love it it's great but i've I've listened to it a few times to get all of it and and so mm-hmm. and one of the things that was really interesting was that he explained fractals and 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 this idea of much as you did as well laid out a lot of content in terms of living organisms but then he applied it for cities Mm-hmm. And for inorganic materials, right, mm-hmm. such as mm-hmm. big structures, um, mm-hmm. and and there's many examples in his book, and I think he gives in the conversation, which is which is super interesting. So I guess the, the two questions with that, I guess, is one, 
How do you avoid complexity theory with becoming a just-so story, right? Where everything can kind of neatly fit into a system, can fit into a theory. Well, yeah, of course, this goes here and this goes here and this goes here. It's almost too perfect, right? How do you yeah. how do you say where is there some space and, and maybe that randomness is the key part of that it? That randomness is exactly yeah, yeah, yeah. Because and, and, you know, otherwise it'd be too perfect, right? Right, right. And the thing is that he can explain much of living structures in terms of fractals, as I already said, mm -hmm. blood vessels are mm -hmm. fractal structures. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the interstitium, I'm looking at the possibility that it's a fractal structure of collagen bundles from tiny scales up to bigger scales. Mm. Uh, and that seems likely for a bunch of reasons. So it's not that living things don't contain fractals. Living things even contain perfectly rigid crystals. Um, in in places, you know, so um, so living things incorporate all the kinds of order you have in the universe. Um, you have different kinds of order, you know, liquids, solids, gases. Mm -hmm. Well, we have all of those in our body, and we have fractal chaotic systems. The heart beats in a chaotic fashion. You model it with chaotic math uh, with with fractal mathematics. Mm -hmm. um, but overall. Um, any of those things could not be alive because they're either rigid and are unchanging mm. or they're endlessly repetitive in exactly the same way. And that's not life. Mm. Life happens. And the what's so when chaos had been discovered, um, there were these early video games, one in particular, which I discuss in the book called The Game of Life. Mm -hmm. And um, it's very simple, squares turning on and off, and you get interesting patterns. And anyone, if you looked at it now, anyone seeing it would go, oh, I know that kind of thing. Um, but what was interesting with the game of life, John Conway uh, invented it, I think, in 1972, early 70s, um, when it was first published in Scientific American. Um, and it was a game. It's called the game of life. But people who were studying it noticed that there were different kinds of patterns that can emerge. Some patterns just die off. The game ends itself really quickly. Some continue eternally, but either just the same pattern over and over, turn after turn forever, or maybe blinking, but there's no variation. And then they got structures that were open-ended, and they looked like fractals. Um, and... But again, predictable. You knew in 100,000 generations what it would look like based on what it looked like here. Mm. But there were patterns that emerged that were unpredictable, and some of them even looked biological. And um, at the time, uh, David Packard and um, Chris um, Langton both were studying these for different reasons. And what they found was Mathematically, as you moved between these blinking or frozen patterns and these chaotic patterns, there was a zone where suddenly things erupted in this biological sort of way and were completely unpredictable. And they could go on forever, but you couldn't imagine what the millionth turn would be based on what the tenth turn would be. And this was the first glimpse of complexity. Mm -hmm. And complexity lies at the boundary between order and chaos. So Packard uh, coined the phrase that complexity is life at the edge of chaos. Mm -hmm. And um, and that's, you know, there's there's 
one very good book for lay people on on complexity from 20 years ago um, that was my, one of my first introductions called Chaos, Life at the Edge of, I'm sorry, Complexity, Life at the Edge of Chaos by Roger Lewis. Um, and that's why. So there's this zone that isn't chaos and isn't perfect order, but it's something else. Mm. Um, and that something else is living things. Uh, you can describe it in terms of information theory. I don't go into this too much in the book, but it's also the zone of of computational information richness. And Packard uh, explored this a lot, um, noting that to be a living thing, you have to be taking in enormous amounts of information and processing it at a very sophisticated level in order to figure out how to respond and how to adapt and change. And so there's this notion also of great computational power. And for the uh, computer nerds uh, in your listening audience, this starts to get into issues that uh, Alan Turing's famous Turing machines of universal computation. This is a universal computation zone. Life itself is a, a Turing machine of universal computation. Yeah, it's it's uh, it's interesting again that 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 overlap. Yeah. The um <clears throat> in the middle of the book, you basically are straddling two worlds. Uh, one is you talk a lot about cells and how there's so much complexity with cells. There's been a, I think an overemphasis on. I think well, actually, I think maybe folks shouldn't over underemphasize one, but many emphasis on genes, genes, and genes. Mm-hmm. But you know, it's really cells that are particularly instrumental. Genes are obviously important, but cells are really, really, really important. And they're super complex. Um, and you talk about that in the book. Uh, you talk about at the molecular level. But then you also dip into physics and you talk about things at the quantum level uh, and the interactions there. So I guess the the, the key thing the key piece here is what you call uh complementarity how do you say (laughs) complementarity yeah yeah Yeah. complementarity yeah um and i think it's in both of those sections i guess um all of them the whole middle section yeah yeah so (laughs) maybe by scale (laughs) yeah so maybe just you can define what that is and talk about that and then kind of branch out on on kind of the cellular stuff and then on the quantum stuff sure sure so um you know the the way I entered into this might be a, a good entry point. You know, I was thinking about um, how ants self-organize into colonies and cells self-organize into bodies, including those of ants, and thought about how um, and this ideal idea of emergent structures being visible at the global scale. And sometimes they look like things, you know, another good example that people will be familiar with is murmurations of starlings. You hear a noise in the sky and you look up and there's a a cloud of starlings and it looks like a spaceship or it looks like a giant bird or it looks like a tree or it looks like a balloon. And um, and if you don't immediately know that they're starlings, you may be startled for a moment and think, what's that thing in the sky? And then you see that it's a flock of birds. Mm. Well, um, then you know it's a bird, and so there's a bird. But I spend hours a day looking at bodies at the cellular level. I've already explained how, from a complexity viewpoint, bodies are nothing more than self-organizing cells. The body is the emergent structure. Mm-hmm. So at this level of scale, um, the body of the bird disappears. The body of my finger pointing at the bird <laughs> 
disappears into a flock of cells or a colony of cells. So then I had to ask, are cells then actual things? But um, when you go deep into a cell at the nanoscopic level, then you're at the molecular level, and it's just the molecules. And, uh, you know, the DNA, the RNA, the enzymes, uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And they're just interacting with each other or floating in water, right? There's no cell there. It disappears into the molecules. Well, are those fundamental things? Well, those are just atoms. Are atoms fundamental things? Well, those are just subatomic particles self-organizing. Are those fundamental things? And when you go down to that level of scale in the quantum realm, people will argue, are there strings? Are there loops? Are there fields? Mm -hmm. Are there yeah. particles? Yeah. There's no agreement about that. Mm -hmm. But what there is agreement on is that at the lowest uh, levels of scale, um, space-time is not smooth the way Einstein describes it in relativity. It's particulate. It's quantum. Mm -hmm. um, there's a smallest level of, of length and a smallest scale of time. And then there is no thing there. There's just space-time, which is full of energy. It's not a vacuum. It's not empty. It's energy-rich. And because of relativity equals mc squared, some of that energy pops off into mass, often matter-antimatter, like in Star Trek. Um, and matter and antimatter particles will touch each other and self-annihilate immediately back into energy. And so you get this seething, what's called the quantum foam. Um, and every once in a while, a particle doesn't self-annihilate, and it meets another particle with which it interacts, fulfilling all the principles of complexity theory. They interact with each other to become larger subatomic particles. Those become atoms. Those become molecules. And then you have the whole universe. Mm. So at no level of scale do you find anything that is actually a thing. Mm. It's all just process. Something appearing as a thing depends on scale. And this is where complementarity comes in. So I look at something and say, oh, this looks like a bird. But the next level of scale, it's not a bird. It's a group of interacting cells. Well, which is it? It's obviously both equally. A complete description of the bird misses half the point if you don't describe the cells. Mm. Um, but a complete description of the cells misses the bird. And I use an image in the book. A simple way to get this across is you have that classic image of two faces in silhouette looking at each other. Mm -hmm. And it looks like two faces in profile, but the space between them looks like a vase. Mm -hmm. Is the picture of a vase or is the picture two faces? Well, it's both, but you can really kind of only see one or the other at one time. And to say it's one misses half the point. Mm -hmm. So all of these levels of scale, according to complexity theory, are equally true. The body is this thing. The body is made of cells. The body is made of molecules. The body is made of atoms. And which it is depends on your scale of view. They are all equally true. Does the body cease to exist at all? And it's just a quantum field that that's the extent of the entire universe, because at the quantum level, there are no boundaries. And the universe is simply one thing. And it's the universe, and we're just expressions of the universe arising from it. That is equally true to you being a separate person there and me being a separate person here. Those are complementarities. 
And you can't resolve those ever. So part of what complexity points to is that if you pick any view as the view, you're already at least half wrong about anything. You have to remember to be flexible. What other possible perspectives are there? And that goes for social structures. It goes for scientific questions. It goes for issues of health and healing, et cetera. Yeah, this is something that I will kind of allude to or mention when I when I when I talk to different types of people, whether in clinical practice or even personally, is people will be very confident about something. Very yeah. confident. It is this. This is the truth. This is what it is. And I know I know this. It's like, well, maybe. Or maybe yeah. you can act as if it's that way, and that's fine. I mean, there, there's, there's certain... It's fine until it's not. <laughs> but, but then it's fine until it's not because it's... And the, the example I always give is, we don't know, nothing at even the quantum level is ever really the same. It's always a little different. It's, all, it's nothing static. And right. it's, it's moving. It's, there's right. all this... Process. And, and if, if it's at that smallest level... There's no way all of these big concepts we have socially, environmentally, or even uh, uh, biologically can be definitive. Now, there's that's not to say that everything is gray and ambiguous per se. There is enough things that we can operate on in the world where we can kind of hang our hat on. But even those things, gravity, uh, other elements of of you know certain things in our in our natural world, we we know them to be true and until they're not. Until they're until they might not be. I mean, we had this with with Newton, and then we had this with Eisenhower, or excuse me, with um, <laughs> Einstein. With, uh, Einstein, and then Heisenberg. I put the two together, uh, and then with Heisenberg, and then you know we continue to have all of these um, uh, changes where it's like, oh, you kind of like bump into this, and you say, right. oh, what we it's thought not, was know, true oh. is is not as true anymore. And people do this now with with dark matter. And they do this with um, with with all different things that we have in the universe. We're still discovering and finding out, right? But you know, so a, a few people have asked me this question or or, or presented this um, sometimes as a challenge, sometimes just as a question. Um, the thing is, with all those things you mentioned, it's never throwing things over in a complete upheaval so that whatever was true before is no longer true. Mm-hmm. Um, we're talking about refinements, yeah. Um, and often um, the refinements are because we're finding a deeper level of scale, a different perspective. It doesn't throw out the old thing. So the earth is not flat. We know that. But mm-hmm. if you're farming a field um, and planning what you're going to plant wherever, the only geometry you have to think about is, a, is you know, flat. Mm-hmm. Because the earth is so large that for all intents and purposes, that field is flat. Mm-hmm. That works. But when you start traveling longer distances on the planet, oh, you start to have to take into consideration that it's curved and ultimately a globe. Um, So there, the globe's in the middle. Mm -hmm. But then you make wider and wider observations and you discover, well, you could describe it that way, but it's really complicated. Mm -hmm. And you can. You can model the universe as revolving around planet Earth, and it's true, but it's going to be really complicated. But if you center it around the sun, that's not so complicated. It simplifies it. Um, We still use Newtonian mathematics, Newtonian mechanics to figure out how to get to the moon. We don't need to use relativity. We're not traveling so fast. But if we travel much further, then we're going at speeds where relativity becomes important. Mm -hmm. So 
And the same thing I, for Einstein's purposes at that level of scale of, of movement of celestial bodies, um, space time can be treated as smooth. But now we know that it's particulate at the quantum scale. So it's all a matter of new views, new techniques will always reveal more. But it doesn't throw over everything. It merely refines it and still contains the most important parts, which remain relevant in a complementary way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I, those other parts. Yeah, an example of this is you know somebody somewhere on something like you know we're just continuing to do Einstein's homework. But there was that that paper he made in 1914 or 16. I don't remember about gravitational waves. And, you know, it, theoretically it works, but we never observed it. We never, we never could prove it in that way. And right. then in 20, 2016, I think it was like almost a hundred years to the, to the, to the, to the year, we, we, we observed it. We were, we measured it. And again, it's this kind of refinement, right? It's like, you don't throw out everything. You just keep refining it and say, oh, now we have this and we understand this a little bit better. And, you know, you see that with the work that people do with, again, you know, you know, dark energy, dark matter, black holes, you know, certain types of stars. And then even further, as we understand um, our place in the universe and what that looks like. And so usually it's not worth chucking everything out the window. Sometimes we do those things, but sometimes it's more of how do we keep filling in all of those spaces that we haven't been able to, to, to figure out. Yeah. yeah. And, and that's where complexity, again, in this notion of complementarity, I find really useful is that it sort of saves us from the kind of hubris that um, offends the people that we're pushing into, you know, we're trying to drag into some new vision. Mm. Um, At the same time makes you think, okay, um, will I be old enough to, will I live long enough to see how someone takes what I thought was clear and makes it even more subtle and more interesting. Mm -hmm. Um, But the, the, what I find kind of fascinating, and this came out of work, you know, I'm spanning lots of fields, as you mentioned at the beginning. Mm-hmm. Where do I get off as a liver pathologist talking about quantum mechanics? <laughs> um, one, I was a nerdy kid studying quantum mechanics in seventh grade because <laughs> that's what I did. Um, but I also have a really good collaborator in Menes Kifatos, uh, who's a cosmologist and a quantum physicist. And um, uh, and what was I going to mention? Oh, and he, so he emphasized to me something that had sort of I had noticed, but is, you know didn't really put much attention to is that Niels Bohr, one of the founders of quantum physics, mm-hmm. um, coined the word complementarity in relationship to scientific law when they were discovering that light, depending on how you examined it, would behave as either waves or particles. Um, the famous double slit experiment, which um, basically said that if you do the experiment one way, light behaves like waves, and the other way, it behaves like particles. And people assumed it was one or the other, mm-hmm. but they found that there was no way to prove it was one because other experiments proved it was the other, no matter what you did. And so he said, well, the full understanding of light is the complementarity between waves and particles and depends on your view just like the two faces and the vase and so this is if people know the word complementarity they usually think of it as light being waves or particles but um but Bohr was very explicit that no he thought this was a fundamental property of existence 
and it was operational at all levels of scale. And one of the early papers Manas and I wrote about before we even started to get to uh, thinking about consciousness, which is the second half of the book, um, was that, oh, complexity shows how, at least one way, how complementarity is operative at all levels of scale in the universe. That And scale is important, like we talked about. And at each level of scale, you get a very different view which you can describe in great detail, but each level will never give you the complete picture and will in fact obscure the other levels Mm -hmm. that you might need to explore. Mm -hmm. And they're all equally important. There's no way to privilege one over the other. Yeah. It's this idea of, of, um, you know, the the whole gestalt theory, gestalt psychology as well, and and how we, we can look at that for perspectives and points of view. It's interesting how this has a lot of, you know, systems theory is is the is the precursor for many things, which would include family systems, um, you know, therapy. It's interesting mm-hmm. how these things also make their way into the social sciences as well. Right. Well, um, and as I said, what does complexity describe? Not only where living things come from and how living things are, but how living things organize themselves into bigger things. Mm-hmm. And what are those bigger things where humans are concerned? Society. Yeah. Yeah. It's the yeah, same yeah. stuff. Economies, yeah. the same stuff. Right. Yeah. 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 Uh, I think that's what's, that's what's so you know wonderful about it is how, how you can kind of see that in different ways in different uh, arenas. Yeah. So you do mention uh, uh, consciousness in the second half in the book. Obviously, uh, a lot of people are. Uh, have been thinking about this in different ways. We have a we've, we we have a new uh, uh, topic that we're obsessing over and 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 continuously obsessing over with 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 AI and all these things, uh, which, which is which is which is so the plague for me now that this book came out. I, I can imagine. I can imagine. Yes, <laughs> not what uh, I wanted to be talking about. No, but. I know. I, I don't find it very. I find it uh, again, kind of not boring, but I feel like it's 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 not very um, the way people talk about AI is I don't know it's it's somewhat pedestrian. I think it's not very um, uh, expansive in a way that it should be. I think it's it's a lot of you know very one dimensional in a lot of ways. I agree. But but in, in with consciousness, so again, that's another area where there's a world of it where people have been obsessing over it or trying to understand it and. I don't have strong opinions about consciousness one way or the other. I know it's something that really, you know, people think about this, but I guess the, the question I have is, is, is currently. So currently you talk about the three positions, which you can elaborate on the materialism, panpsychism and idealism. But I guess what I want to know is how do you make the distinction? If you do of subjective experience or our and or our phenomenological experience from consciousness are they uh, is there overlap is one dependent on the other um and i guess also is it important like, mm-hmm. this idea of consciousness like can we understand and explain things about our humanity and things about our world and our interactions with objective subjective the phenomenological i mean is consciousness and even a construct that we need to spend time thinking about and, and if it's if it's uh, not distinctly different or not what what are your thoughts on how these things kind of line up um you know uh Menas, this collaborator of mine sort of dragged me kicking and screaming into consciousness <laughs> um <laughs> studies um 
I, I was not particularly interested. Um, if I want to understand the nature of my mind, I spend more time meditating on a cushion in the, um, using a Zen form, <laughs> um, and have my mind looking at itself. You know, that's what contempla contemplative practice is, meditation, is the mind looking at itself. And from a science, empirical science point of view, technically speaking, in empirical science, modern science, the subject and the object, the experimenter and the subject of the experiment can't interact, right? They need to be separate. And so um, the object... You know, whether you're studying uh, slides in a mouse um, or uh, stars emerging um, in a distant galaxy, there needs to be separation. Um, this is the problem with doing medical research. We know that it's exquisitely difficult to keep the person running the clinical trial from having some influence mm -hmm. on what's going to happen in the clinical trial. We have issues of placebo effect. And, um, Those are all the, 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 the external threats to, to validity or whatever it is, right? Right. right. <laughs> right. And so, and we revere in our uh, culture that empirical science can do this. And yet for the mind to study itself, there's no way to separate those. Right. Um, the subject and the object are the same thing. And yet, when one looks inward, what one finds across different cultures is that following your mind inward deeply leads you to larger mind. Um, you know, the, an image I use in the book is you're in a cave and there are these holes in the ground filled with water. And if you dive in and discover they're not individual little ponds, but in fact, they all connect to the subterranean water flow underneath. Um, they look like they're separate above, but in fact, they're all one thing. And that's kind of the universal uh, experience in deep meditation of the deepest states of mind. It becomes all one thing. So to me, that was what I was interested in, in thinking about mind. I didn't really care about what the brain's role is in this. But it seemed obvious that, well, um, the brain is complex. Some people will say it's the most complex thing in the universe. Um, a little more human hubris, but okay. Um, and couldn't mind, couldn't our individual minds be the emergent self-organization, um, the global emergent property of the functioning of the brain? The brain, And I thought that's perfectly reasonable. Um, and that's the materialist view. Um, and that's the modern view. Cognitive neuroscience and all the other scientists, sciences that study how mind happens, start with the assumption that the brain is this amazing computer and so sophisticated and complex that it can actually produce consciousness. But that runs up against what's called the hard problem of consciousness, uh, first stated by David Chalmers, a philosopher, that none of the signaling pathways, um, chemical, cellular, electrical in the brain, tell you how we experience something. So um, I'm looking at your the wall behind your head, and I see this hanging that's made of cloth. It has texture, and I see black and off-white spaces. And, oh, now I notice that it looks like salamanders doing an Escher kind of dance with each other. Mm -hmm. uh, oh, Galapagos. Okay, mm -hmm. so now I even have a word. <laughs> right. And um, so black and white light is... 
um, bouncing off of that through the computer, hitting mm-hmm. my retina, causing a bunch of cellular things uh, chemically to result in electrical signals, which travel along my optic nerve, hit my visual cortex, and that organizes it into this image. But now if I close my eyes, um, I can picture this black and white image of interlocking salamanders that says Galapagos and reminds me of an Escher painting. And where is that image? It's not being triggered by any signaling in the brain. Um, it's in my conscious awareness. Well, is that in my brain? But if I seek the limits of my conscious awareness, particularly in a deep contemplative state, it's vast. There are no limits to that. Mm-hmm. So is the experience of things in the mind explained by the brain. And the field acknowledges that they're not because whenever they describe correlations, associations of brain function with some activity, some conscious experience, they talk about neural correlates of consciousness. They can correlate them, but there's nothing to say that my conjuring the image isn't what's causing the firing of the brain in that particular fashion. Um, and so this is a persistent problem now decades old where, um, we cannot explain the hard problem of consciousness and it's led to a revival of something that used to be thought of as being really silly, which is panpsychism, Mm -hmm. that consciousness is something that pervades the universe. But now for the last 10 years, serious scientists, serious philosophers, um, across a lot of different fields are contemplating that maybe all things that are cells have consciousness and their little consciousnesses self-assemble into larger scale consciousness, which again sounds like a complexity thing. So I bought into that for a while and that I actually wrote a paper on that. And some people say it's quantum particles carry consciousness. Some people say space-time gives rise to consciousness. But you still have the same problem. It just pushes the hard problem of consciousness mm-hmm. to lower levels of scale. Historically, the third possibility is that mind is what's at the base of everything, consciousness. And English has very few words for this, so it's not a good way to describe. So I can say mind, consciousness. Unasa and I prefer to use fundamental awareness, just pure awareness. What is your mind if there is no object within it? You're simply aware of your mind. And people describe these states in deepest meditation. Um. And within that realm, there is no separation of subject and object. It's called the non-dual realm. There are no distinctions between alive and dead, black or white, good or bad. All distinctions arise from a subject-object split where one thing can look at another thing and describe it. In this fundamental state, there's just pure awareness of awareness. Mm -hmm. And this is not foreign to Western philosophy. This is... Plato, this is mm-hmm. uh, Spinoza, Hegel, Kant, Whitehead in the 20th century, Bernardo Castro in this century. It's a mainstream of Western thought. It's also what underlies quantum physics. The best way to, the simplest way to explain um, the double slit experiment is that consciousness is what comes first. Max Planck, the founder of quantum physics, said one cannot get behind consciousness, meaning that's the necessary first thing. And wave versus particle comes secondary. The nature of existence comes secondary. Complexity theory shows us the same thing and with its complementarities. And um, 
And so that's where, and and that aligns with the great spiritual traditions of the planet from all Mm -hmm. sorts of different cultures. Mm -hmm. And so that's where the book winds up, is that the only way to unite all of these different ways of understanding the nature of existence, where they all overlap together in a fairly seamless way, is that consciousness is what comes first. And so what does it matter whether you know that? Well, the first thing is everyone's wondering around tearing their hair out over whether AI, when it gets fast enough, deep enough, more complex enough, is going to become conscious and take us over. Well, no, it won't. It's just fast calculations. Yeah, that's right. That's right. It won't give rise to true consciousness any more than, a, than, than our brains are giving rise to the consciousness. Mm-hmm. Um, they're transducing consciousness, perhaps, and that's a very different thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so it helps answer that question. But to me, it also, um, when you put that together with the idea that depending on your scale that you're observing, we are either feeling separate like we are here, or at the most fundamental levels, we are all part of a seamless whole that is the universe. And even before that, a seamless whole beyond description that is pure awareness, then that changes how we are in the world. That changes how we look at other people and and deal with them and treat them, what questions we ask them, what mm-hmm. we, questions we ask of ourselves. Mm-hmm. And I think that experiencing the world that way leads to greater resilience, greater creativity, more ad- adaptability in the manner of a complex system. Mm-hmm. So I think it matters. Mm-hmm. It's, it's interesting. You're, you're the second person uh, this week that has mentioned my uh, it's, it's, it's not, it's, it's a, it's like, uh, it's made out of cloth. It's a, it's, yeah. a, it's, it's, it's handmade. It's, it's not like a poster. It's anything. a tapestry. Kind of yeah. Thing. Yeah. 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 It's woven. And, uh, yeah. I, I, I did get it in Galapagos. That's why it says it on there. And, uh, it's, it's interesting that I love the pattern. Um, and it's, it's, it's great. It's interesting though. I, I guess it's my, my, uh, my subliminal projective. I'm giving all of my, <laughs> my, my podcast guests. Um, yeah, so I, I agree with I think a lot. I think the the way in which you described um, how we understand consciousness and why it's important, I think is is right because there's a lot of there's a lot of talk and a lot of noise about it, and and I think you know there's some interesting things. I, I agree. I was very 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 uh, anti you know panpsychism, you know kind of the Deepak Chopra kind of what <laughs> kind of thing, and. I, I also have heard over probably the past 10 years, people have said, well, you know, as we keep understanding things, you know, maybe there's something there with that. It, I don't think anyone has said like, this is, you know, you know, a no, of but, fact. It's, it's, it's but it's now part of the mainstream dialogue in a yeah. way that was closed out. And mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. what I think my, you know, I obviously have stated where I think the answer lands but I think no one can read my book and argue that idealism should not be back in the conversation as well. Mm-hmm. It's on the table. Mm-hmm. And it's it's on the table in Western science and mathematics own terms. Mm-hmm. We haven't talked about the mathematics, and there's there's no time for that. No, no, no. But so it's fine. But, but yeah. Good it's, and Alan Turing take us right there. It's like yeah, math yeah. doesn't do it either. Mm-hmm. Uh, and to me, the pivotal chapter in the book is where we consider Kurt Gödel and his incompleteness theorems. Yeah. Um, yeah. We'll leave that as a dangling tempting thing. <laughs> we'll, we'll leave it as the, as the yeah, as the as the 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 appetizer for people to to read the book. The the last question I have for you is is uh kind of a, a summary question which is 
you know, how important do you see complexity uh, for understanding ourselves, consciousness, um, and the world around us? How, how do you see this as central and, and super important for, for us in our world? I, I, I say this at the beginning of the book. I, I think complexity is up there as with quantum physics and the theory of relativity as one of the three great pillars of science in, in the modern era. I think it's it builds on chaos, it builds in systems, builds on systems theory, and that builds on biology, chemistry, physics, the great reductionist um, sciences. But I think it's the pinnacle of all this stuff. If we want to understand the, our nature as living beings in a universe, and a universe that feels alive and conscious often, and I'd say is, mm. um, then it's complexity theory that takes us there. People often observe that quantum physics and relativity are the two most successful theories of science. They predict real events in the world down to the 10 to the minus 20th, <laughs> you know, um, digits. Um, but we don't know how to bridge them. Um, they're describing things that are fundamentally um, non-intuitive. Complexity theory is what spans the smallest scales described by quantum physics and the largest scales described by relativity. And it does so in a way that's intuitive because this is the world we live in. Mm. Uh, what uh, excites me when I give talks on this, I've been doing talks on this publicly for lay audiences for 20 years, which is how the book came to be eventually. And um, light bulbs are going off over people's heads all the time when I give these talks. And for everyone, it's a different thing. But they're lighting up because, oh, that's something I knew about the universe. That's something I knew about the way traffic flows down the sidewalk or that ant colony or mm -hmm. trees budding in springtime. Um, complexity brings it all together and makes sense of it in a really transparent, simple, and intuitive way. And once you see it, you can't unsee it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Everywhere you look, walking down the street, um, you know, anyone who reads the book or studies complexity in any fashion, then go out for a walk and, and uh, you'll see it everywhere. It's, yeah, yeah, it's, I, yeah. I totally, totally agree with you. I, I, I definitely felt, um, more of that reading reading your book the the book is called uh notes on complexity a scientific theory of connection consciousness and being it's out everywhere now um neil this was such a lovely conversation i'm uh, very 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 happy that we were able to, to to have this and to to get all of your thoughts and, and you explained everything so magnificently so uh, big 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 thanks for you for coming on and uh sharing you, all sir. of your wisdom thank you so much for the yeah. opportunity of course. Okay.